ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so last week then we got to the fourth doubt فان قال انا لا اعبد الا الله وهذا الالتجاء الى الصالحين ودعاؤهم ليس بعباده if the individual says that i do not worship except allah and that this seeking of recourse and resorting to the salihin and making dua to them it is not considered worship faqullahu so then say to him anta tuqirru anna allah aftarada alayka ikhlas al-ibadati lillah do you acknowledge that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has obligated upon you sincerity of worship to Allah فَإِذَا قَالَ نَعَمْ So when he says yes, because he has to say yes, he cannot say no to that question. When you ask him, do you acknowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it obligatory upon us to worship him sincerely? He's not going to say no. If he says no, then he has absolutely no understanding of any of the affairs. So clearly he's going to say yes there. That yes, we have to worship Allah sincerely. فَقُلَّهُ So then say to him, بَيِّنْ لِي هَذَا الَّذِي فَرَضَهُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْكَ وَهُوَ إِخْلَاصُ الْعِبَادَةِ لِلَّهِ وَهُوَ حَقُّهُ عَلَيْكَ then say to him, clarify to me this affair which Allah has obligated upon you, and that is sincerity of worship to him alone, and that is his right upon you. فَإِنَّهُ لَا يَعْرِفُ الْعِبَادَةَ وَلَا أَنْوَاعَهَا So he will not know the reality of worship or any of its types. إِذْ لَوْ عَرَفَهَا In the sharh, وَأَنْوَاعَهَا لَمَا نَفَاهَا عَنْ نَفْسِهِ Because if he genuinely knew what this sincerity of worship is, and what the different types of worship are, if he really knew those affairs, then he would not have negated them from himself. لَكِنَّهُ مِنْ أَجْهَلِ الْجَاهِلِينَ وَأَضَلِّ الظَّالِينَ فَإِنَّ الْجَهْلَ أَنْوَاعَ أَعَظَمُهَا الْجَهْلُ بِاللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَأَسْمَائِهِ وَصِفَاتِهِ And ignorance, it is of different types. And the greatest of ignorance, is ignorance in relation to the names and attributes of Allah. Ignorance in relation to the names and attributes of Allah. Because they say 
all of the different types of knowledge, the knowledge of Allah is the greatest. Because the value or the status of a particular type of knowledge is dependent on the topic. Depending on the topic, you will then be able to determine what the status or the level of that particular knowledge is. So if the topic of a particular knowledge is Allah, the names and attributes of Allah, that's the topic, then certainly that knowledge is going to be greater than all other knowledge. The knowledge of your Lord, the knowledge of your Creator. So the topic and the subject of a knowledge gives its level of importance. And so the names and attributes of Allah, they are in relation to Allah, your Lord, your Creator. And so the level of importance to that is obviously greater than all other affairs. And that's a general type of understanding to remember. That all different types of knowledge have their level and their status. And that's why the scholars they mention, when a student of knowledge begins upon the path of knowledge, then it is organized. And there are certain books that you would do first, and then others would come afterwards. There are certain areas that you would need to study in first, and then others would come afterwards. Because every level of knowledge, it has its level of importance. Its level of importance for the student of knowledge, beginning on that path of seeking knowledge. Its level of importance in terms of the subject and the topics. All of these things have to be taken into consideration. When a person doesn't take that into consideration, then you may end up studying into certain books or certain affairs that are not from the primary affairs and from the early steps that a student of knowledge is supposed to be taking. And so all of that time goes into some particular book, which isn't from the core of the fundamental books to begin with, to learn the principles and the foundations. And so you've spent all of that time in that book, or in that topic, or in that subject, and you haven't mastered the other affairs that are the building blocks prior to that. And that's why there always used to be a debate in Medina regarding the lessons of a sheikh, Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad, Hafizahullah Ta'ala. There was always a discussion amongst the students, should you go to his lessons first, or should you go elsewhere to the other books first? Because the lessons of a sheikh, Abdul Muhsin, of course a high level, into the books of the Sunan, Al-Bukhari and Muslim and Tirmidhi, Nasa'i ibn Majah, Abu Dawood. So there was always the discussion, should a student go and begin with that, when he hasn't even done the three principles yet? Or he hasn't even done the four principles yet? Or Al-Qawaid, Al-Usul Sitta, any of the basic books, he hasn't done those yet, should he go there? According to the general principles, then you go to the, the most knowledgeable of the scholars of the land. That's what the muhaddithun used to do. 
You go to the most knowledgeable of the scholars of the land. That's how it's mentioned from the time of the Salaf. They would go to the most knowledgeable of the scholars and take everything they could take from him and then go elsewhere to the other mashaykh and the other scholars. And so some would say, you have to go directly to him first. Go directly to the lessons of the sheikh because the problem was they are six days a week. If you go there, it's not like you can go and attend another one between Maghrib and Isha. So there was always that discussion between the students. And I think the balanced conclusion from it would be that if you are unable, not talking about that situation specifically, but generally, generally no doubt you have to do the mutun, you have to build up your stages of knowledge. It wouldn't make sense for a brand new beginning student on the beginning of his journey to go straight into some deep book of hadith and studying that hadith after hadith, but he doesn't even know the basics of aqidah yet. And he doesn't even know the four fundamental principles yet. You may need to find some balance where you finish those mutun, those basic books and those fundamentals, and then you move up. But nevertheless, here the point was now, that knowledge is of different types and different levels, but this individual will not have any recognition of that. And the jahal, as we mentioned previously, is of two types. There is the jahal basir, and there is the jahal murakkab. And what is the difference between them? What is jahal basir? And the one that is murakkab, the basir is that a person is ignorant and he knows he is ignorant. He is upon ignorance and he knows he's upon ignorance. He knows his level. He knows what he doesn't know. But then the jahil murakkab, the situation and the state of a person where he doesn't know, but he thinks he knows. So his ignorance is doubled. His ignorance is doubled. He doesn't know in the first place. He's upon ignorance. But then he thinks that he knows. And he thinks that his ignorance is actually knowledge. And so he ends up being in compound ignorance. And they have those famous lines of the donkey of Tuma. When the donkey said, if they were just, if they did justice, I would be the one riding upon Tuma. Some of them say his name was, some say that was something else. But the donkey says, I would be riding on top of him, not him riding on top of me. Because I, the donkey says about himself, the donkey says he is upon Jahl Basit. The donkey knows he's ignorant. He's upon ignorance and he knows he's upon ignorance. But he says, the guy sitting on top of me, riding me around, and I'm carrying him everywhere. He's upon ignorance, but he doesn't even think or know that he's upon ignorance. So he's upon double ignorance, murakkab. I should be riding him, not him riding me. So, Sheikh al-Athameen, he spoke about this in some of his books as well, regarding the topic of ignorance, jahal and jahal basit and jahal murakkab. So here he says, if you were to mention to this person these aspects of ikhlas or the aspects of worship, he wouldn't know the details of these matters. 
He would not know the details of these matters. فَبَيِّنْهَا لَهُ بِقَوْلِكَ So then clarify them to him with your statement. قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى أُدْعُوا رَبَّكُمْ تَضَرُّعًا وَخُفْيَةً إِنَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُعْتَدِينَ فَإِذَا أَعْلَمْتَهُ بِهَذَا فَقُلْ لَهُ هَلْ عَلِمْتَ هَذَا عِبَادَةً لِلَّهِ فلا بد أن يقول نعم والدعاء مخ العبادة So recite to him this ayah أُدْعُوا رَبَّكُمْ تَضَرُّعًا وَخُفْيَةً This ayah in relation to the act of worship of dua Highlighting to him that dua is an act of worship evidenced by the Qur'an itself Because the crux of the issue with him now, where he's trying to go now, is to say that him calling upon the deceased isn't an act of worship. He said, أَنَا لَا أَعْبُدُ إِلَّا اللَّهِ I don't worship anyone besides Allah. وَهَذَا لِلْتِجَاءُ إِلَى الصَّالِحِينَ وَدُعَاؤُهُمْ لَيْسَ بِعِبَادَةٌ And as for me going to them and calling upon them or resorting to them, this act isn't Worship, he said. So now narrate to him from the Quran. Narrate to him these ayat, this and others like it. Highlighting that dua is an act of worship. Dua in of itself is an act of worship. So if you then highlight this to him, and you make him aware of this, فَقُلْ لَهُ Then say to him, هَلْ عَلِمْتَ هَذَا عِبَادَةِ لِلَّهِ Do you know? And are you aware that this is therefore an act of worship to Allah? Tell him and say to him, are you aware that this is an act of worship to Allah then? Are you upon understanding of that then? فَلَا بُدَّ أَنْ يَقُولَ نَعَمْ He's again going to have to say that dua to Allah is an act of worship because you've just recited the ayah to him and other ayat you could recite too. So once you've done that and you've established in the Qur'an that it's an act of worship in and of itself, he can't then say to you, no, it's not worship. After you've narrated an ayah where Allah is commanding you to make dua to him. So he's going to have to say yes. And no doubt, الدُّعَاء مُخُّ الْعِبَادَةِ The dua, it is the intention here, the core of worship. And that's why the scholars, they say the correct wording from the narration is, الدُّعَاء هُوَ الْعِبَادَةِ Dua, it is worship. Meaning just like Al-Hajju Arafa, that Hajj is Arafa. Not that the whole of Hajj is just that, there are other parts to Hajj. But the key part of Hajj, the core of it, the main aspect of it is Arafa. So just like that, Al-Dua, Huwa Al-Ibadah. Dua, it is worship. Doesn't mean that all of worship is just Dua, nothing else. There are other forms of worship and other types of worship, but the dua is a core aspect of that worship. 
It is a key component from all of that worship. وَالدُّعَى مُخُ الْعِبَادَةِ Meaning, الدُّعَى هُوَ الْعِبَادَةِ فَقُلْ لَهُ إِذَا أَقْرَرْتَ أَنَّهَا عِبَادَةِ If you then acknowledge, now you're building up to explaining to him that dua is an act of worship. So you say to him then, if you acknowledge now that making dua is an act of worship, if you acknowledge that, then دَعَوْتَ اللَّهَ لَيْلًا وَنَهَارًا خَوْفًا وَطَمَعًا ثُمَّ دَعَوْتَ فِي تِلْكَ الْحَاجَةِ نَبِيًّا أَوْ غَيْرَهِ هَلْ أَشْرَكْتَ فِي عِبَادَةِ اللَّهِ غَيْرَهِ So you say to him then, if you now recognize that dua is an act of worship, you recognize that dua is ibadah. So now if you call upon Allah night and day, you make this dua to Allah night and day, you do this worship to Allah night and day, in fear and hope, calling upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you perform and you do that worship then. But, وَدَعَوْتَ ثُمَّ دَعَوْتَ فِي تِلْكَ الْحَاجَةِ نَبِيَّنَ وَغَيْرَهِ But then in that time of your supplication, in the midst of your dua, at some point you call upon a prophet or other than him, then have you committed shirk now or not then? Have you committed shirk now or not then? You are acknowledging that dua is an act of worship. So then you call upon Allah night and day in fear and hope. You supplicate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But then in there, you end up doing supplication to a prophet or to other than a prophet, to other than Allah. Then have you not committed shirk there? Have you not then committed shirk? فَلَا بُدَّ أَنْ يَقُولُ He has to then say, yes. How can you then say no? The shaykh, he explains. If at any point he says no to these answers or to these questions, then the debate and the discussion with him is done. If he says no, then he clearly isn't accepting the facts that are in front of him. You have proven to him stage by stage, you've proven to him dua is an act of worship. Now when you say to him, therefore, if you do this act of worship to others besides Allah, is it not shirk? If he says no, then as they say, banging the head on the wall. You are explaining, but if he's going there, then there's nothing more to do with him. Upon ignorance, ignorance he doesn't understand, or he is understanding, but purposely arguing against it, refusing to accept it, then it shows the level of misguidance he's upon. So he has to say yes. He has to say, okay, yes, it's an act of worship. Therefore, if you call upon others, you are doing this act of worship to others besides Allah, and therefore it is shirk. فَقُلْ So then say to him, when he acknowledges, okay, it's shirk, 
if you call upon others besides Allah, فَقُلْ لَهُ then say to him, فَإِذَا عَمِلْتَ بِقَوْلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى If you then act upon the statement of Allah, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ And pray to your Lord and slaughter for him. And pray to your Lord, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ And that has the meaning of invocate. Make dua, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ From the tafsir of this and the root meanings of this is to call upon your Lord, to invocate, to make the dua, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ And do the sacrifice and the slaughtering in reference to Eid al-Adha. وَأَطَعْتَ اللَّهَ وَنَحَرْتَ لَهُ هَلْ هَذَا عِبَادَةً so then you say to him, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ Pray to your Lord and slaughter for your Lord. So if you were to obey Allah and slaughter for him, هَلْ هَذَا عِبَادَةً Is this worship then? فَلَا بُدَّ أَنْ يَقُولَ نَعَمْ He's going to have to say yes. It's there in the Quran, the ayah in front of him. Is it worship to slaughter and sacrifice for Allah? He's going to have to say yes. هَلْ هَذَا عِبَادَةً فَلَا بُدَّ أَنْ يَقُولَ نَعَمْ فَقُلْ لَهُ So then say to him, فَإِنَّ حَرْتَ لِمَخْلُوقٍ نَبِيٍ أَوْ جِنِّيٍ أَوْ غَيْرِهِمَا هَلْ أَشْرَكْتَ فِي هَذِهِ الْعِبَادَةِ غَيْرَ اللَّهِ So say to him then, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ Pray to your Lord and slaughter sacrifice for him. Ayah clear in the Qur'an. You say to him, so if you obey Allah upon this ayah and then you sacrifice for the sake of Allah, have you done an act of worship there then? He will say yes. Ayah is clear. It's an act of worship I would have done. So then say to him, if then you went and slaughtered or sacrificed for others besides Allah from anyone in creation, for a prophet, for a jinni, or other than them, then would you not have committed shirk alongside Allah then? You've acknowledged from the ayah, it would be worship for you to go and slaughter for the sake of Allah. He's acknowledged that. So then ask him, if you then slaughtered for other than the sake of Allah, for a prophet, or for a jinni, or other than them, have you committed shirk now or not then? He's going to have to say, Yes, فَلَا بُدَّ أَنْ يُقِرَّ وَيَقُولَ نَعْمْ He will have to say yes, he will have to acknowledge it and say yes. How do we generally determine what an act of worship is? We mentioned the statement of Ibn Taymiyyah which is very broad and general. إِسْمٌ جَامِعٌ لِكُلِّ مَا يُحِبُّهُ اللَّهُ وَيَرْضَاهُ a comprehensive term for all of that which Allah loves and is pleased with. From statements and actions, hidden or apparent. That's very open. What methods more specifically can we utilize to determine if something is an act of worship or not? Assume everything is 
easier than that. There's one easy, obvious answer first. How to determine something is an act of worship. Go back to the absolute fundamentals. That's the action being correct, but how do we know in the first place it is according to the sunnah that it is a, a, a viable action? Allah likes it. How will we know that? The commands. Allah commands you to do something in the Quran. It's an act of worship. So one obvious method in determining that something is an act of worship, that Allah commanded you to do it, straightforward. Allah commanded you to do something, it's an act of worship. So that is one obvious method in determining and understanding that something is an act of worship, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded you to do it. What if there is no direct command upon something? What other method would be a very reliable method of determining that it's an act of worship? Now going back to the definition of Ibn Taymiyyah. What sign? If we see something in the Quran, Sunnah, certain acts that we've not been commanded to do them, but they are mentioned as having reward attached to them. If Allah tells us of a certain action that is rewarding, then clearly it's an act of worship. If there's going to be reward upon a particular action, it's mentioned that this action will have reward for it, and the, uh, the person who does it will have this reward or that reward, then we know that is an act of worship. That is something beloved to Allah from statements or actions, whatever it might be. It is something beloved to Allah such that there is reward mentioned upon it or that the action is generally praised. That Allah praises the ones who do this or do that. Therefore, those actions must be actions of worship. That Allah is praising the ones who do this and praising the ones who do that. And they are actions of worship because Allah is only going to praise those actions that are beloved to Him. Allah will not praise for us to do that which is not beloved to Him. So those affairs are some of the types of things to look for in determining something is specifically an act of worship. So now you've established with this individual Dua is an act of worship. Slaughtering is an act of worship. You've established that. How? Via showing him ayat of the Quran clearly. Ayat of the Quran clearly. Both of them were evidences or examples of Allah. Commanding us to do them. Commanding us upon dua. Commanding us with the slaughtering. You're being commanded to do these actions. That's the first easy method. You've been commanded to do something. It's an act of worship. Allah commands you to supplicate to Him and return to Him. Make dua to Him. It's an act of worship. Allah commanding you to slaughter and sacrifice for Him. For His sake, sincerely, it's an act of worship. 
So you've established that from the Qur'an that these particular acts are acts of worship that Allah has commanded us to do for Him sincerely. Then the next stage is you say, okay, in that case, if somebody did one of these acts of worship for other than Allah, then would that be shirk? He has to say yes. If he says no, then he has no understanding or he is rejecting on purpose the reality, the clear reality of what Tawheed and Shirk is. So he's going to have to say, yes, it is Shirk. If you call upon others, it would therefore be Shirk. Because what is the broad definition of Shirk? Broad definition of Shirk is, Sarful ibadah as one of the broad definitions of Shirk. Any act of worship, you do it for other than the sake of Allah. For others besides Allah, it becomes shirk. Any act of worship, which should therefore only be done sincerely to Allah. If you take that act of worship and do it to others besides Allah, it becomes shirk. فَقُلْ لَهُ هَلْ كَانَتْ عِبَادَتُهُمْ Ah, this is the next section then. He then says, وَقُلْ لَهُ أَيْضًا And say to him also, الْمُشْرِكُونَ الَّذِينَ نَزَلَ فِيهِمُ الْقُرْآنُ هَلْ كَانُوا يَعْبُدُونَ الْمَلَائِكَةَ وَصَالِحِينَ وَاللَّاتَ وَغَيْرَ ذَلِكَ Say to him now then, the mushrikun whom the Qur'an was revealed at the time of, those mushrikun at that time who were there when the Qur'an was revealed, did they used to worship, or even if the meaning of revelation is the actual mentioning of them in the Qur'an, that those mushrikun whom the Qur'an spoke of, and they were of course also the ones who were there at that time too, so those mushrikun then, did they used to worship the angels or the righteous people? Uh, Allat, one of the idols they had at the time, one of the famous idols. And other than that, did they used to worship all of those things or not? Now we've already been previously with him in discussion, highlighting to him multiple ayat that proved the mushrikun used to worship all those others. It's in the Qur'an, clear. We've already done that with him. So now when you ask him this question, he has to say, Naam. فَلَا أَنْ يَقُولَ نَعَمْ He will have to say Naam, because he cannot reject something which is clearly in the Qur'an. The Qur'an telling you that they used to worship the, uh, the angels and the stones and the trees and the other affairs. Qur'an telling you, he cannot reject that. He cannot reject the clear evidences of the Qur'an establishing that they did used to worship all of those other affairs. لَا يُمْكِنُهُ أَنْ يُنْكِرَ شَيْءً أَثْبَتَهُ Al-Qur'an. It is not possible for him to reject something that the Qur'an has established. وَاذْكُرْ لَهُ النُّصُوصَ أَدَّالَّهُ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا يَدْعُونَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ 
So then mention to him those evidences that we already stated regarding how they used to call upon the angels and how they used to call upon the other affairs. And so he will have to say yes to this. So then say to him, And remember, all of this is in stages. You've now so far established with him a few various different points. You've established with him that these acts of worship of dua, slaughtering, these are acts of worship only to be done to Allah sincerely. You've established that with him. You've established with him on a separate note that the mushrikun used to call upon angels and stones and trees, the various affairs. You've established that over there. Now look at the way the shaykh builds it together. You've established that the mushrikun used to worship idols, trees, stones, everything else. You've established that dua and sacrifice and these actions are actions of worship sincerely for Allah. Two separate things have been established. So now he brings them together and he says, say to him, now that you are accepting these two things we've established, say to him now, وَهَلْ كَانَتْ عِبَادَتُهُمْ إِيَّاهُمْ إِلَّا فِي الدُّعَاءِ وَالذَّبْحِ وَلِلْتِجَاءِ وَنَحْوِ ذَلِكِ Say to him, those mushrikun at that time, was their worship of their idols and statues and angels and prophets, was it anything other than dua and calling upon them? Was it anything other than slaughtering and sacrificing for them? This point that you've established with him here, that these are all acts of worship you are now establishing upon him, that's exactly what the mushrikun used to do. They used to commit shirk in this act of dua, which you have acknowledged is an act of worship now. They used to commit shirk in this act of slaughtering, which you have accepted and acknowledged is an act of worship and it's shirk if you do it to others. You've made him establish or affirm certain points and then you bring those points together upon him and there is no reply. He's already agreed dua, sacrificing these affairs are acts of worship then. He's agreed to that. He's agreed they used to call upon the different deities. He's agreed to that. Now you're going to take it a layer higher, a layer higher, a level higher, bring it all together. They used to commit shirk in this action of dua. They used to commit shirk in this action of slaughtering and sacrificing to all of the various deities that they used to call upon. The angels, the stones, the trees, the prophets. So everything that you're slowly in stages building up with him and making him accept because the evidences are clear on each of those points. Then you bring them all together and the picture is built for him that everything they are doing right now is exactly what the mushrikun used to do. Exactly in the affairs that he's acknowledging now are shirk is what they used to do. <coughs> فَهَلْ كَانَتْ عِبَادَتُهُمْ إِيَّاهُمْ إِلَّا فِي الدُّعَاءِ وَالذَّبْحِ وَلِلْتِجَاءِ وَنَحْوِ ذَلِكِ وَإِلَّا فَهُمْ مُقِرُّونَ أَنَّهُمْ عَبِيدُهُ وَتَحْتَ قَهْرِهِ Otherwise, you go back to the point with him now. Otherwise, even they used to admit and acknowledge and accept that they are the servants of Allah and that they are under his 
control. Even they used to accept that, and they used to acknowledge that. وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ الَّذِي يُدَبِّرُ الْأَمْرِ And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is the one who controls the affairs. Even they used to accept that. Because now after all of that, you're coming back to his other point, which was, but we testify, La ilaha illallah, we worship Allah, Allah is our creator. We believe in all of that. After you've established all of these points, you then even establish that with him, and tell him even that, even that, they used to believe all of that too. And they were still mushrikun. They used to believe Allah is the one who controls all of the affairs. وَلَكِنْ دَعَوْهُمْ دَعَوْهُمْ وَالْتَجَأُوا إِلَيْهِمْ لِلْجَاهِ وَالشَّفَاعَةِ But they used to call upon them. دَعَوْهُمْ وَالْتَجَأُوا إِلَيْهِمْ They called upon them, invocated, supplicated, and resorted to them and sought recourse in them because of their status and because of intercession. وَهَذَا ظَاهِرٌ جِدًّا And this is absolutely clear. And the evidences have already been mentioned. وَيَعْبُدُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ مَا لَا يَضُرُّهُمْ وَلَا يَنْفَعُهُمْ وَيَقُولُونَ هَؤُلَاءِ شُفَعَاؤُنَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ They used to worship those besides Allah who do not harm them, nor bring them good. And they say, these are our intercessors with Allah. وَإِلَّا فَهُمْ مُقِرُّونَ أَنَّهُمْ عَبِيدُهُ تَحْتَ قَهْرِهِ So they acknowledged they are his servants and they are under his authority. So that up to there, like we said, is the core of the subject. That's the core of the subject. Those first three and that fourth one, which kind of summarizes the first three into one, brings it all together as a response. That's the core of the argument. To clarify and explain to the people who believe you can go and call upon the dead and make dua to the deceased and ask for their intercession. That's the basis of the response to them. Obviously, there's a, mo- a lot more detail. You can have a lot more ayat, a lot more ahadith. But the core of the argument and the core of the explanation is there. Now what comes then, as the Shaykh mentioned last time, all of these doubts that come up now are subsections of that. They are all subsections out of that. It's almost like you have all of that core which you've refuted him upon now. So now he's going to nitpick things out of it. Certain little, but what about this and but what about that? Small things out of that core. And all of those small things individually can be refuted. And the basis of the refutation of all of them goes back to the core that's already been done. So the next one we'll begin next time is going to be that now that you've established all this with him, he turns around and says, He turns around as they do, and they say, okay, what then? Are you saying there's no intercession then? Are you saying there's no intercession? Are you rejecting the intercession of the messenger? That's what they'll turn around with then. And that's what we'll begin with next time, inshallah.
Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah Hayya 'ala as-salah Hayya 'ala as-salah Hayya 'ala al-falah Hayya 'ala al-falah Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar La ilaha illallah Any question? You mentioned as a side note with regards to um, basically prioritizing what knowledge we uh, go out to seek. Um, and it brought to my attention that some people might be like um, overwhelmed or intimidated by some of the lessons. Um, but would you say that it's, it's pretty clear that this lesson, which is basically to do with Rahid al is for everyone, it's like basic and they shouldn't be they shouldn't give you courage you know with regards to when you hear the answers of the scholars when they get asked the question how does a beginning student of knowledge start on the path of knowledge which books, how does he do it where does he go, even that discussion we were talking about now regarding and the other classes there is a context to that type of thing and that context doesn't really exist in the West. And the reason being, there's a completely different situation here compared to if you're living in Medina, for example. Here in the West, or wherever that might be, you don't have access for a start to the scholars directly. But on top of that, the access to lessons is very limited. It's not like you go to the haram in Medina, go to the haram one night and you've got 10 different lessons in fiqh, usul, fiqh, hadith, this, that, the other, take your pick. We don't have that here. So if now in your markaz, in your locality, wherever it might be, you have a student, you have someone teaching a class. That class is a little bit more advanced than where you are right now. Maybe that class is in uh, Al-Wasatiyah or something. And you haven't yet done the three principles, four principles. You're just brand new. The reality is you need to attend regardless. Because now in this given situation, nobody's going to say to you, but wait, you can't attend that lesson until you go find somewhere or some way to do the three fundamental principles first, then go to your markaz and attend the classes. Nobody's going to say that. You have to go because that's just the way the situation is here. We don't have the, the luxury that you can just go around the corner here, there, everywhere, three principles being taught here, Kitab al-Tawheed being taught there, four principles being taught here. You could do that in Medina. You could work out your schedule, sit down, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, here, there. You work out your schedule, you do all the books. But here you don't have that. So here you work on that schedule as much as you can with recordings, with other affairs, 
books, listening, go back to the speakers, ask them questions with other uh, uh, students. Do what you can in that regard, but you have to attend the gatherings. Because you can't say to somebody, the gathering is too high for you, so don't go. So even if in a situation where the gathering was slightly more higher than your level right now, you've still got to go. Because we're not going to say to people, don't go because it's too difficult for you. Wait a year until they finish, don't attend any lessons. That's never going to be the advice to anybody. You go, it's going to be slightly difficult. Ask questions, ask and ask the speaker, ask other brothers, talk, discuss, revise. Do as much as you can and push yourself further with that. And then in the meantime also, work on the other mutun and the books that need to be done in the meantime. Here specifically, like you said, a book like Kashf al-Shubuhat, it's not the complicated books. It is one of the beginning level books. It would be in the early stages of the books. So somebody in the early stages could do this. This isn't something that it's fifth level or eighth level and you're on level one yet. It's not that deep. It's a short book. We're, we're two-thirds of the way through, half of the way through, two-thirds of the way through in 10, 12 lessons. Another eight, nine lessons, it'll be done. It's a 20-lesson book. 20 lessons, 25 at most. It's not an in-depth, detailed book. So this is something that can be done even by beginners, reasonable beginners. And the explanation used is very simple. It's not detailed. You could, you could spend five sessions per shubha. You could go through every detail and bring 50 ayahs for each one. But the reality is nobody's going to memorize 50 ayahs. So memorize one or two or three per shubha, per doubt. And if you do that for the whole book, Alhamdulillah, you've done it very well. So this book is certainly suitable, there's no doubt. And most of the books are. Most of the books taught here in the West generally, they don't get beyond a certain level. You're not going to find lessons here on Tadrib al-Rawi and these kind of books. Or Nukhbat al-Fikr and various other books of high level in sciences of this and that. They don't get taught in the West, very rarely. And even if they do, they are going to be more specific types of gatherings. And that's in fact what the scholars, or, or they generally mention too as well. It has been stated that the open classes should be kept generally average, middle level, low, and then more serious and higher level students. They can do private gatherings for the more detailed and difficult books. So most of the gatherings in the West, they will be generally appropriate on the whole to anybody. They will generally be appropriate on the whole to anybody to come, inshallah. We'll have to stop there. It's time for the prayer. We'll uh, resume next week, inshallah.